Stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, authoritative, sufficient, and efficacious word. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you uh, for the Gospels, and in particular the Gospel of Mark, for this accurate, factual account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would by your Spirit speak to our hearts, awaken us to your truth, fill us with your Spirit, And we pray that we would see Christ with the eyes of faith once again this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. When offered or received, it is one of the greatest blessings in life. Amen? When given or received... Forgiveness is one of the greatest blessings in life. When we forgive those who have wronged or offended us in some way, we give no space for bitterness to take root and to poison our lives and relationships. When we receive forgiveness from others, it brings a true sense of healing and relief and gratitude and peace. For Christian believers, the giving and receiving of forgiveness also evidences sincere belief in the gospel. How can one claim to understand and believe in Christ's forgiveness if he is not willing to truly forgive forgive others from the heart? Isn't this why Jesus declared in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But... If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Perhaps there is someone, beloved, that you need to ask for forgiveness from or need to extend forgiveness 
2. It's one of the blessings of coming to the Lord's table every Sunday because here we keep short accounts. Amen? We keep short accounts. And so forgiveness from the heart is basic to the Christian life and essential for a healthy walk with God and others. Forgiveness in human relationships is indeed a wonderful blessing, but it's only a dim reflection of the astonishing forgiveness offered to us by Christ. That's the theme of the gospel narrative that is before us this evening, and the title of my message reflects that, namely, that Christ forgives sins. Christ forgives sins. And beloved, aren't you glad that Christ forgives sins. Amen? That is good news. That is good news this evening, that Christ forgives sins, that by grace through faith, he does not hold our sins against us, that rather than leave us to pay for our sins in unspeakable torment forever, which Christ talked about more than he did heaven, he grants us forgiveness full and free and everlasting life in communion with God, the angels, and the redeemed. What a glorious thought. What glad tidings of great joy that we receive this evening. Christ forgives sins. Not some, not most, but all of our sins by grace through faith in Him. And I hope that we'll have time this evening to reflect upon that glorious truth. But before we unpack our passage for this evening, we've been away from the Gospel of Mark for uh, several weeks, so I want to quickly review the context. And unlike uh, the other synoptic Gospels of uh, Matthew and Luke, Mark begins not with genealogies and birth narratives, uh, but he uh, begins with the immediate lead up to Christ's public ministry. He begins with a designation of Jesus as the Son of God and of John the Baptist as the forerunner of his public ministry. Mark quotes from Isaiah at the beginning of this book to demonstrate that Old Testament prophecies were being realized in John the Baptist's coming as well as Christ's. Mark quotes Isaiah 40, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John then baptizes Jesus, once again a kind of inauguration of Christ's public ministry and identification of himself with those for whom he came to save. And it's also a divine affirmation. As the Spirit descends upon him and the Father declares from the clouds, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. After overcoming a fierce season of temptation in the wilderness, Jesus then begins his public ministry in Galilee with preaching. What was his main message? We see it in verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. By the way, that is the old-time religion we all need to get back to in every sphere of those who call themselves Christians. I was speaking to someone about this uh, yesterday at a wedding 
reception. We need to get back, no matter what Protestant tradition uh, that we are in, we need to get back to this clear definition of gospel preaching. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, confess and turn away from your sin and from your idols and believe the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Turn away from sin and turn to Christ. That was and still is Jesus' message to everyone. Repent and believe the good news of the gospel. In the remainder of the chapter, Mark outlines the calling of the first disciples as well as several miracles that Jesus performed, healing the diseased, the demon-possessed, and cleansing the poor leper. One thing that is notable about the opening chapter of Mark is all the positive attention that Jesus is getting. Um, Of course, he receives opposition from the devil, but from people, he's not receiving any opposition at this point. In fact, Mark reports in verses 27 and 28 that people were amazed by him and that his, quote, fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Many were seeking him out. There was no human opposition to him at this stage, only amazement, wonder, and growing fame. But of course, this would soon change. And this human opposition would gain strength from the beginning of chapter 2 all throughout his public ministry and would culminate at the cross. It would culminate at the cross. And this human opposition would culminate at the cross. Well, now, with this context in mind, let's turn our attention to Mark 2, 1 through 12. If you're taking notes this evening, I have three simple points. Christ is a prophet, Christ is a priest, and Christ is a king. Indeed, we see the exercising of Christ's three offices so wonderfully in this text. And first, we see here that Christ is a prophet, verses 1 and 2. Look there with me again, verses 1 and 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. Picture the scene with me. Imagine yourself there amongst the crowds. Have you ever been just absolutely packed into a space like sardines? Have you been on a subway at rush hour? Wondering why the person didn't put on deodorant in front of you? Who's smashing up against you with his arm up in your face? This is what it was like. It was crowded. And people couldn't even get through the door. The crowds had gathered. Whether this was a family home for Jesus or a home provided to him by friends while spending time in Capernaum, we don't know. In fact, it says here that... After some days, it was reported that he was at home. What we do know, though, is that a lot of people knew where he was staying, and they gathered to see him and to hear his powerful preaching. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing, wasn't it? He was preaching. And the more progressive and liberal expressions of Christianity uh, in our own country and around the world, there is not an emphasis upon Christ as preacher. 
because in some ways that's seen as unsophisticated uh, and unchristlike even. Uh, but throughout the gospel, what we're going to see is that Christ is absolutely committed to preaching. It's why he came. It's why he wanted to enter the next town to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. He was preaching, it says in verse 2, the word to them. He wasn't doing skits. He wasn't giving motivational speeches or TED Talks. He wasn't life coaching. Jesus was preaching the word, a word that was good news but also offensive to those who did not want to hear what he had to say. He was preaching the word. Whose word was he preaching? He was preaching the word of God. He was preaching the good news of the coming kingdom. He was preaching, in fact, himself from the Old Testament. When we think about the preaching of Jesus, of course, we see snippets like we did in chapter 1 of Mark, but we also see a little more insight into the way that Christ preached from Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus. Turn there with me if you have your Bibles. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, and beginning in verse 13. This is after Christ was raised from the dead, of course. And it says, That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. We don't know exactly what that means. Was Christ wearing a, a hood? Was he uh, supernaturally in some way? Was he disguised from that? We don't know. Um, but we know these travelers had seen Christ crucified and had heard about all that had happened. If they hadn't seen it all, they had heard about it all. And they were very sad because they were thinking this was going to be the Messiah, the one who's going to deliver us from the tyranny of Rome and set us free. And uh, they had a misunderstanding of, of, of what the Bible taught in the Old Testament, as Jesus will soon bring out. And so verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, now listen, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures 
the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do, you why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Do you see? It's a long passage uh, to read, to refer to, but it's one that gives clarity to the message that Christ brought to the people, to his own disciples, but also to the people. And here we see Christ exercising his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king, and here the office of prophet. This is classic Christology. Jesus fulfilled three offices in his earthly ministry, three offices that we see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see prophets, priests, and kings, all anointed, all filled with the Spirit to carry out certain tasks. All the prophets and all the priests and all the kings were sinful in the Old Testament. Some lived more faithfully than others, but all were sinful, and none of them could deliver Israel from their sins. Christ came to fulfill these offices perfectly. We see in our text this evening that Christ, first and foremost, was the final and perfect prophet for God's people. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 24, it is asked, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? The answer is, Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us, by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. He exercises or executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Please hear this. 
It's what Christ was doing in his public ministry in Capernaum on this day, and it's what he is doing this evening by his word and his spirit in the lives of his people, revealing to us the will of God for our salvation. The writer to the Hebrews states this in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So when God's word is faithfully preached, we receive the word of Christ. We listen, exercising faith in Christ. Calvin and the other reformers would talk about the voice of God in Scripture. When we hear the word faithfully preached, we receive the word of Christ. Paul certainly understood this to be the case when he wrote in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of? Of Christ. Of Christ. Therefore, our approach to the faithful preaching of the word of God should be with humility with expectation, with attentiveness, and with eagerness to grow and to learn. For Christ is speaking to us by his Spirit through his word. We all, at different times in our lives, have come to preaching with different attitudes, with different approaches, um, uh, perhaps uh, you've never really thought much about uh, these things we're talking about just now. But the high view of preaching that exists in the Reformed tradition is there because we do believe that through faithful preaching, Christ himself is speaking to his people, speaking to me. I am under the preaching of the word as you are under the preaching of the word. And Christ is speaking to our hearts through his word and the faithful preaching of his word. And so we do not approach with a critical heart, although we need to examine all things and be good Bereans. We need to examine things by the word of God. Uh, we do not come with critical hearts. We come with humble hearts, ready to learn, ready to grow. But it's not only the office of prophet that we see Christ exercising in our text. He also shows himself as our high priest. And this really is the emphasis of the text, isn't it? As Jesus was preaching the word and the crowds gathered closely around him, verse 3 states that four men came carrying a paralytic. Of course, they would have come seeking healing for the paralytic from the one that they heard so much about. But there was a dilemma. They couldn't even get near Jesus, the text says. They couldn't get near him. They couldn't get near him because of the crowds. The doorway was completely jammed with people. So what do you do when you can't get through someone's door? Well, you go through the roof, right? You go through the roof. This wouldn't occur to us today because of how our buildings are constructed, of course. But in Jesus' day, the roofs of homes were flat. And there would have assuredly been a stairway outside of the house that would lead to this flat roof. Or there would have been a stairway in a house next door that would have led to their roof where they could have gone from their roof to the next house, house's roof. You've heard the term, it's raining cats and dogs, right? You ever 
hear where that came from? Well, in jolly old England, uh, there would be homes with thatched roofs, and when there were big storms and rain would come down for days, and there would be animals up on the roof. And if it rained a lot, the roof would weaken, and literally animals would come falling through the roof into the living room. It's raining cats and dogs. Well, you think about these roof constructions uh, in Jesus' day. Again, they would have been flat. And as one commentator explains, the roof would have been constructed with, with, quote, beams and transverse rafters overlaid with brushwood and tree branches and other natural materials, and then overlaid with a thick blanket of mud or clay mixed with chopped straw. I'm going to quiz you on that after the sermon. So these men with faith in Christ and loving desperation for their friend or family member, we don't know the relation, they dug a hole in the roof directly over where Jesus was teaching in his home where he was staying. And they lowered the paralytic down on a pallet. Now look with me at verse 5. How did Jesus respond to this? And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Christ, exercising his office of the great and final high priest, declares that this man's sins are forgiven. Dear ones, what wonderful words to hear from the lips of Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. There are a couple of things I want us to consider here. Number one, Jesus deals first with this man's greatest problem. Uh, For most, they would look at this man who is paralyzed and perhaps for a long time and think, oh, this poor man, and think that that was the man's greatest problem. But in all actuality, it wasn't, and Jesus knows this. Jesus deals with his sin and ultimately his separation from God because of his sin. And he provides to this man mercy and grace and forgiveness through faith. Secondly, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. It's personal. It's personal, dear ones. And covenant children, if you'll look at Pastor John for a minute, it's really, really important that you realize that you need forgiveness of sins. You need that. Not just your mommy and daddy, we need it too. But you need the forgiveness of sins personally. And so we hear this wonderful response of Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Each of us needs this personal forgiveness from Christ as we exercise faith in him. We cannot receive forgiveness through our relationships with others through our connections with mom or dad or a praying grandmother or through a particular church we attended in the past or uh, through uh, some kind of a relationship we have or through church membership. We must receive forgiveness by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's personal. He says, your sins are forgiven. Thirdly, we must recognize here that 
All of his sins are forgiven. He said, your sins are forgiven. What terrible news it would be if he said, son, many of your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say this. All of his sins are forgiven. Not half of them, not 99% of them. If, if 1% were left unforgiven, we would have to spend an eternity in hell. God forgives all of our sins in Christ. He forgives all of them. Have you received the forgiveness of sins? Have you asked God for forgiveness through Jesus Christ by faith? He stands ready to give you forgiveness. That's why he came to bring forgiveness. We read this at the end of Luke. He says, that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem and spreading out to the entire world. Christ brings forgiveness of sins through his life, death, and resurrection. But not all in the room were pleased with Jesus' word of absolution. In fact, the scribes or religious leaders who were present were greatly offended. Some of them were questioning in their hearts how Jesus could say this. They say, why does this, what they say in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Christ can perceive what's going on in their hearts. We don't know exactly how all that's working, but he is perceiving in their hearts what they are thinking. And, and, and God, we must say, can perceive what's going on in all of our hearts. He knows our hearts. He knows our hearts. And that's a great comfort to those who are in Christ, forgiven under his mercy, because we can say, Lord, this is who I am. Forgive me for my sins. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness. You know my heart better than I do. And my life is an open book before you. It's good news when you're in Christ. But it's bad news when you're outside of him. And he can read your heart. And he can read that you are in opposition to him. That you do not embrace him, that you reject him. And so God knows our hearts. He can read our hearts, even as he did these scribes. These scribes, of course, knew their doctrine. They were right. They knew that only God could forgive sins, and that's the point, isn't it? Jesus could forgive this man's sins because he indeed was and is the eternal Son of God in the flesh. I want to read to you a quote from J.C. Ryle that is so good. Let us consider how great must be the authority of him who has the power to forgive sins. This is the thing that none can do but God. No angel in heaven, no man upon earth, no church in council, no minister of any denomination can take away from the sinner's conscience the load of guilt and give him peace with God. They may point to the fountain open for all sin, 
They may declare with authority whose sins God is willing to forgive, but they cannot absolve by their own authority. They cannot put away transgressions. This is the peculiar prerogative of God and a prerogative which he has put in the hands of his son, Jesus Christ. But again, the scribes were not happy. And inwardly they protested. But Jesus, we learn, perceived in his spirit that they questioned him. And so he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. So Christ perceived that they were thinking, Oh sure, he can say this. Anyone could say this. How could he say this? It's blasphemous, and anyone can say this. And so Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, says, Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And that's exactly what he did. And this miracle will show that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of Man. He's the one spoken of in Daniel 7 who will suffer and die and rise and one day return on the clouds to judge the nations and to bring his people home to glory. In verse 12, we read that he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Of course, in all of this, Christ shows himself as a king. Of course, we know and we're reminded of in December that Christ set aside his kingly privileges and rights as the eternal son of God. But we also see him exercising his office of king in his public ministry, demonstrating power and authority over disease, over sin, over Satan, over demons. Jesus is indeed our prophet, our priest, and our king. He was so different than the religious leaders. The commentator Hendrickson put it this way. Jesus stressed Love, they, legalism. Jesus stressed God's holy law, they, the law-bearing tradition. Jesus stressed freedom, they, bondage. He, the inner attitude, they, the outward act. How they hated to surrender to him, their prestige, and their hold on the public, end quote. So as we conclude this evening, let us reflect upon this glorious high Christology which is found in this narrative in Mark chapter 2. Christ is our prophet because he reveals the word of God to us. He reveals the will of God to us, and he reveals to us the gospel of our salvation. He is our priest because in him, we receive the forgiveness of all of our sins, full pardon. As a minister, of course, I have time 
uh, with members of this church, uh, have had time with members of uh, previous churches and with Christians around at conferences and such. And from time to time, it's extraordinary to me how deeply distressing past sin can be in Christians' lives where they will just really wonder if God could really forgive them for their past sins. And I have to remind them that Christ's forgiveness is so wide, so free, so glorious. It is full and free, full pardon, not half pardon or mostly pardoned with you having to kind of make up the difference. No, forgiveness is full and free. And if you were to look up at Christ, the Son of God, the Son of God and the Son of Man, hanging on the cross, suffering with the wrath of God, bearing down upon Him, our sins laid on Him, you would know that Christ has purchased your redemption and there is nothing left and forgiveness is full. And so let us be reminded of Christ as priest who forgives us for all of our sins and let us be reminded this evening that Christ is our king, that he has authority, authority over all things. And even now he sits at the right hand of God and has been given all authority in heaven and on earth and he's carrying out his will and he's building his church and he's protecting his people and one day he will bring us home. And so as we come to the Lord's table this evening, let us remember Christ as our prophet, Christ as our priest who gives us the forgiveness of sins, and Christ as our king, the one to whom out of gratitude in our hearts we kneel down to and say, yes, Lord, you are my king, and by your grace I want to serve you. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this narrative, for this time in Mark chapter 2. We do pray, O Lord, that you would feed and nourish us upon your word, that you would forgive us of our sins, and that you would grant us, by your grace, a heart that revels in Christ and the three offices which he exercises in the church and in our lives as prophet, priest, and king. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.